book of Revelation, yeah, I was joking in class, but it's true, actually. A friend of mine lived for decades on the border of Oklahoma and Texas on the northern side, Oklahoma. Okay, so, you know, you know there's grace. So, <laughs> you know there's grace. But uh, the uh, story she was telling me one time, she, we, I was going to teach the ladies' class on the book of Revelation. They had asked me to do that, and so for a quarter I was going to teach the book of Revelation. And one of the things that she told me was that she was really glad we were going to study it because she's never studied the whole book. She said, but it also worried her because every time one of the preachers at the church she had gone to in Oklahoma had started teaching Revelation, by chapter 3 they were fired. So I did actually make it through the entire book of Revelation by providence. I was not fired, but by providence I did end up moving to New York when I was done. So, you know... I was like, I'm sorry, but I did finish. So what I want to do for the next several weeks, although I'll be gone here in a couple, that's not related to the story, by the way. Uh, I'm speaking at a workshop, and that's when Eastern European Missions guy will be here. But we're going to look at the letters that Jesus had written to the seven churches of Asia. And uh, if, you're, if you're not so familiar with them, uh, it's probably because you grew up in the Church of Christ, and we avoid revelation like we avoid the Holy Spirit. That's a joke, but it was also too true for a long time. It's not true anymore. But, but for a long time, you know, anything that was just too controversial, you kind of tried to stay away from, and all you did was actually get into other controversial stuff. But these seven churches were really spread all over here. And Ephesus is one of the furthest west, if not the furthest west. The other one's on, on there for a point of reference. It's in what we would call Turkey now. Prominent city, about 250,000 people lived in Ephesus, which at the time was bigger than that sounds now. That was a huge city. It was a capital city for its area, for its region. It was very influential in trade. You can see why on the map. It was very influential in religion. If uh, you're familiar with the book of Acts, you remember that the church at Ephesus started when Paul and Silas were there. And you will remember, too, that when... Uh, when Paul, that Paul got into a whole lot of trouble for th- some of the things that he said and did. And there was a riot at the amphitheater there. And uh, this amphitheater, of course, is still around right here. If you go to Ephesus now, you can actually still get a feel for the size of this town. And really impressive city is what it was. It was also a very pagan city. One of the reasons Paul got in trouble was because a silversmith decided that if, if too much of this Jesus stuff got spreading and they were going to tell people that no, actually God is not contained in a little metal idol, then actually his business was going to tank. And so he did what lots of big businesses do nowadays. If you find out somebody's going to fix things too well, you sink that ship. So that's what he did. Uh, he starts a riot and along with he got some, some friendly help from some of Paul's Jewish enemies at the time that were traveling around and causing trouble for him too. And the next thing you know, great big problems in that theater. It was a, a prominent city. The other prominent landmark in that time, and you can still see some of the ruins, is the Temple of Artemis, also known as Diana. Ephesus was a religious center. And this huge uh, temple was at that time one of the seven wonders of the world. It was that impressive. And so when Paul took the gospel to Ephesus, the reason he did that was this. One, people needed it. But two, when you look at Paul's travels, with only one, maybe two exceptions, 
Paul always went to a center, a city that was, whether it was a trade center, an educational center, a religious center, a, a governmental center, he always went to a town that would have the influence already of once he planted the gospel there, it would just naturally radiate out from there to the rest of the area around it. And Ephesus was very much one of those strategic decisions made by Paul and the Holy Spirit. That theater... I guess you might as well use my map here, right? Give you an idea that some of you might have been to Wrigley Field, and you certainly probably a lot of you have been uh, to Arlington, but this amphitheater is so big that it's almost as big, you see, as both the stands and uh, part of the baseball field. So really pretty impressive in its scale. And like I said, you can still go see it if you want to. And uh, probably Jeff would take you over there. I bet you he'd be glad to. And you could see all of that. The biggest problems center over here. And when Jesus looks at the church, there are some things that he wants to deal with with them. And yet, interestingly enough, this wasn't really the biggest problem that he wanted to deal with, even though it was one of the biggest challenges in reaching out to people with the gospel. So let's read this uh, before we go on and see what Jesus had to say. Again, this is uh, Jesus speaking to John, uh, the apostle. Relaying a message he wants to get to these seven churches. Let me say before we read it too. These seven letters are all unique to each of the churches, but they were also all to be communicated to all seven churches. They were all to hear all seven messages, but each message was also tailored to a particular church. That's why it suits us so well to look at these seven. One, the Holy Spirit has desired us to do this. Two, it is because there is something in all of them sometimes more than a something in all of them, that really speaks to right where we are in our situation as well. So kind of listen to, to that as we read the words of Jesus. To the angel of the church in Ephesus write, the words of him who holds the seven stars in his right hand, who walks among the seven golden lampstands. He's referring back to what he had said in chapter 1 in an image there, that Jesus is the one who reigns, that Jesus is the one who judges, that Jesus is the one who is present among His people. That's kind of the imagery there. I know your works, your toil, and your patient endurance, and how you cannot bear with those who are evil, but have tested those who call themselves apostles and are not, and found them to be false. I know that you are enduring patiently and bearing up for My name's sake, and you have not grown weary. Now, if we stop right there, this is all good stuff, right? And he tells them, these are the things that, that I know about you. I know that you work hard. I know you've been really patient. I know that you stand up for the truth. There are things about these Nicolaitans that we don't actually fully know what it was that was their deal. We just know they were false teachers and that Jesus really didn't like it. Jesus doesn't like when people sped, spread false things. But that they were admired by Jesus himself because they stood up to them. He says, I know these things about you. And there's a comfort that comes to us. And this is a pattern he follows in all of these letters. I take that back. This is a pattern he follows in six of these letters. In six of the letters, he starts with, let me tell you what I know about you that is good, that is right, and that I want to encourage you to hang on to and not lose. In one of these letters, sad to say, Jesus looked at the church and said, I got nothing for you. Boy, we don't want to be that one, do we? Where Jesus says, you know, I was going to start off with something good, but my mama told me if you don't have anything nice to say, don't say anything at all. So we're just going to skip to the stuff we've got to deal with. That's bad, okay? 
But that was, that was the reality. In Ephesus, he says, these things you've got right. And he starts with this, this phrase, I know. That's part of, partly, I think, for us to remember that as Jesus walks among the churches, and He does both figuratively and literally, He is here with us today. He walks among us as we are the church Monday through Saturday spread out across our communities. Jesus is there. He knows what we do. That does not have to be a scary thing. We were laughing the other day about the old song, the all-seeing eye watching you, watching you. That's horrible. You know, they, Nobody wants to think of this gigantic eye in the sky that's, well, that's just kind of weird looking anyway, wouldn't it be? That's just watching everything that you do. You know, we already have enough of those anyway. You know, even the FBI director and Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook said, put tape over the camera of all your laptops. You should not have those things, that tape over the camera. Which is creepy, because we don't want to think about a digital all-seeing eye watching us either. This is better than that. Jesus knows you. He's not spying on you. He knows you. He knows every hair on your head. He knows, you know, some of us, that's not too hard, but He knows every hair on our head. He knows every need. He knows every heart's cry. He knows the words that only the Holy Spirit can interpret when we know not what to pray for, Romans 8 says. He knows all this stuff about us. And He doesn't ignore what's right. I think that's important. I think this is why Jesus did this. He wanted them to know before He dealt with something hard, you know what, I know what you're doing that's right. And I love that about you. I love that about the church in Ephesus. You get this stuff right. You work hard. You're not afraid of getting your hands dirty. You're not afraid of meeting needs. You're not afraid of getting out there. You have really done a lot of good work. And he says you also have been patient because you've endured a lot of trials. It goes back to that temple we were looking at and the riots. And, and that wasn't the only time that it was hard for them because of the influence of false pagan idolatry in their town. There were a lot of things that were absolutely just difficult for them. And hard to get through. Remember, it's the church at Ephesus that he said about 20, 30 years earlier that he had to tell them, listen, I want you to put on the full armor of God. God, you're going to need your shield, your helmet, your sword, all of it. Because when it's all said and done, if all you can do is stand firm, then at least stand firm. So this is that church. He wrote Ephesians 6 and the armor of God to these people. Some of them still alive when John wrote this. And shared it with them by the order of Jesus. They knew what it was like to do hard spiritual battle. And they had stood up for what was right and stood up for what was true. And when the Nicolaitans came with whatever their false doctrine was, they stood up to them and said, No, here's what the truth is. Here's what God wants. He says, But I do have a problem with something. Okay? So it's possible to do a lot of hard work. It's possible to endure a lot of hardship. It's possible to say we stand for the truth and Jesus still look at you and say, yeah, but. Because that's what he's going to do in the very next verse. Let's read it what he says. Read at what he says. We're not going to read at it. We're going to read it. Let's read what he says. Verse 4. But I have this against you, that you have abandoned the love that you had at first. Remember, therefore, from where you have fallen, repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand from its place unless you repent. Yet this you have. You hate the works of the Nicolaitans. I also hate it. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit 
says to the churches, the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. He says, you have been really good, but there's something missing. What I really saw in you at the beginning was not just work. I saw love. It wasn't just getting things done. And there's a big difference, isn't there? Between getting something done and actually doing it from a motivation of love for the Lord and love for your neighbor. Anybody can feed somebody. Jesus' people are called to feed in the name of Christ and with the love of Christ. It goes so far beyond food. It goes so far beyond. Anybody can sing a song. Anybody can come here and sit in a chair, sing, pray, and do all of these things. But there is a whole other dynamic that happens when the people who come together in the name of Jesus do so because they love. And do so expressing love. A huge difference. And it's not hard to find what that difference might be. Take just one of the things that he, he actually uh, compliments them on. The very last one. I love you that you stand up for the truth. For a long time. Churches of Christ have been known as people who, who really had a strong desire to seek out and to find what is true and to stand up for it. And our beginning in that quest was one of love. It was one that was to bring people together in the unity of Christ. It was one that said, we just want to drop anything that would divide us and drop any of our denominational labels. We just want to be Christians and Christians only. And anybody who calls in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, we want them to know. We love you and you're our brothers. This is our history. Okay? 200 years ago, that's what happened. Along the way, we do what the Ephesians did. You start to teach the truth, but you teach it out of a different motive. And it becomes a motive of being right. And you cannot work from a motive of, I must be right and I must love at the same time. Now, it sounds, I know that sounds weird, but you cannot. If you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, and soul, and strength, you'll do what He tells you. You will automatically be doing what's right because you're doing what the Lord tells you to do. So you're doing right. But you can make your quest so much about being right and winning arguments and all of these things that you forget to love. A friend of mine, uh, he went to college at uh, Freed Hardman back in the, yeah, I almost said the 20s. That's his father. He wouldn't like it if I said that. Uh, whenever, the 50s. I think it was the early 50s. Early 50s, if I remember right. And he talked about being there and hearing some of the old debaters debate. And one of them was just an absolute hero of his. And he, he was so excited to actually get to go and hear this guy. It was a debate there in Kentucky. And he was uh, debating against a, a Baptist pastor. And they got up there and they had their debate. And there were points made on both sides, he said, that were valid points. You know, there was some good back and forth. But there was, and I can't remember what the debate was about. <laughs> I give you three guesses, right? Because there's probably about three topics they were going to talk about. We're not getting into any of that this morning. The, uh, toward the end of the debate, and, and I judge UIL debate, and so you see this, and, and you guys probably watch political debate sometimes, and so you see this. When somebody runs out of material, what do they do? 
They attack the person. By the way, in debate judging, that's an automatic loss. When you start ad hominem attacks of the person, what you have just communicated is, I got nothing. Well, he watched his hero come to the end of his material, and he started attacking this man based on, you don't agree with me, therefore you're an abomination to the Lord. He said he lost a hero that day. And the thing was, he agreed actually with his hero's stance, but he couldn't agree with his tactic. And we have to watch ourselves because it's so easy to want to be right. It's so easy, even when you are sometimes right, to lose sight of why it's important to know the truth. And you change it from, from being like Jesus in the moment where He calms the demoniac and has Him back in His right mind and clothed and being gentle and forgiving with this man into something where you use it as a bully club to beat people over the head with. I don't know if that was exactly the Ephesians' problems, but this happens. It's an example of how sometimes we can lose sight of our first love. We started out as, as, as a, a group of people saying, we want to, to be able to exemplify the unity of Christ, not the division. And somewhere along the way, a lot of, a lot of folks lost that and just started being yet another part of, of the division. I think Jesus would say to us as a group, I'm not talking right here, as a group, Man, I wish, I, I wish you guys were what you had back in 1856. Because that was good. You've got a lot good. But that, that love, I'd sure like to see more of that. So then he tells them how to get back. YBH, yeah, but how? If you find yourself, whether as a group or as an individual, saying, you know, I used to love the Lord. You just have a zeal and an excitement. And it wasn't just going through the motions. And I can remember when, you know, maybe you remember back to your baptism and go back to that. Think back to the day when you finally made the decision and said, you know what, I want to follow Jesus and I want to know that my eternity is secure and I want to start this journey with Him. And you went down into the water and you were excited, maybe a little bit nervous. You come back up and you just get your hair standing on end, you know. That's, that's the way it was for me, I'm telling you. I literally felt 50 pounds lighter and I didn't even weigh much of anything then. But it's just that burden gone. You think back then, we'll say things like, yeah, I wish I could know what that was like again. And what Jesus says is, you absolutely can. And where does it begin? Love. Right? Remember your love. Remember what it was like. But don't remember to be nostalgic. That's our mistake. Sometimes I will hear conversations. And we'll get local. Sometimes I will hear conversations in this church about, oh, I remember when we had. Oh, I remember when so-and-so did. Oh, I remember, and wasn't that great? And do you know what I think? I'm, tell, I'm going to be honest with you. I'm going to tell you exactly what I think. Every time you do it, now you'll know, and now you'll be mad at me. Here's what I think. Nostalgia kills, and you are killing your church if you're stuck in nostalgia. Shame on you. Sometimes I've said it out loud. Sometimes I haven't. But that's what I think. I don't think it because, oh, well, that's just what James thinks. I think it because I lived in New York at a time 
when the Catholic Church was shutting down 19 churches a year, the only thing that had kept them alive that long was nostalgia. You know, the cycle of going through nostalgia is in the death spiral end of the cycle of life. Always. Nostalgia is at the death end of the cycle. But it's not final. This, this, this cycle is not fate. Jesus can break cycles. He looks at Ephesus and says, Guys, you're, you're going down the spiral here. you got a lot of good. You've done a lot of good. You've endured a lot of hardship, and that has been good. But the one key ingredient to your life is the one thing you're missing. Love. Now, I would not say that, by the way, about this church on a corporate group level. It's a loving church. But you know, we can also love nostalgia, love tradition, love each other, love what we do, and it not be the same thing as loving the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and loving your neighbor as yourself. There are a lot of people who love uh, Disney World. But going to Disney World never saved a soul. They love it, but it's not what Jesus is talking about. There are people who love their church because they like six different kinds of potato salad at every fellowship. But that's not what Jesus is talking about. They like the songs. That's not what Jesus is talking about. He says, what you've forgotten is your first love, God. It's become about you. It's become about just getting things done. Maybe it's become about the past, but not God, not Jesus. And so Jesus has to give this letter to them saying, I want you to remember what we had. It's kind of like a marriage. Remember when you opened the door? Remember when you, when you got that look and... and, and, and people actually thought you liked each other. You remember that? That's what we want. This is what Jesus says He wants in the church. When you were excited, when you couldn't wait, not, ah, that again. That's a decision we make. It's not just an emotion. We become slaves to our emotions and it's unhealthy. We can change those. And He says it starts with remembering, where were you? And what was it you loved so much? And the second thing he tells us is, what do you do when you remember where you were supposed to be, but you're still where you're not? What do we call that in Bible words? Repent, right? And this is what he says. You need to repent. You've lost sight of the love that was supposed to be at the core of who you are and the core of everything you did, and, and you need to get that back, and you need to change directions, and you need to repent. And he actually he puts it fairly sternly. Let's look uh, verse 4 again. I have this against you that you've abandoned the love you had at first. Remember, therefore, where you have fallen. Repent and do the works you did at first. If not, I will come to you and remove your lampstand unless you repent. So this is serious. The removal of the lampstand is symbolic for you won't be my church. I will remove, the lampstand represented the presence of God. I will remove my presence from you because you will have abandoned me. That's serious stuff, isn't it? To think that there can become, there come a point where we can get so self-involved or so task-involved that we, we start ignoring the Lord Himself even and our love for Him, even though we say we do what we do, that the Lord can actually say, you know what, y'all can keep doing what you're doing, but I'm not going to be a part of it. And He walks off. 
This is serious for the church at Ephesus. He says, so repent. If you do, listen. Everything's going to work. I am going to make sure that you're okay. But this has to happen. You don't get restoration without repentance. You don't get growth without your own repentance. We always want growth by demanding that the town repent. He says, no, actually, you start with yourself. That's where you go first. You turn your life back to where it belongs, and you repent. Then he says, I want you to go back, look at what you said. I want you to repent and realize you're in the wrong place, and I want you to repeat what you did at the beginning. Now, that's the one that's kind of interesting to me in a way. Uh, remembering, you know, kind of restoke the fires. That makes a lot of sense. Repentance makes a lot of sense. Repeat. How does that make sense? I'll tell you how it makes sense. We are as likely to do ourselves into a way of thinking as we are to think ourselves into a way of doing. We always want the thinking and the feeling to come first. I want to feel, I want, can, I, can I get that, that fire back and then I'll, I'll jump back in. And what Jesus is saying, no, sometimes you actually need to jump back in to get the fire. You know the old illustration of the, the preacher who goes to the guy's house, the guy's been completely cut off from the church for a long time on his own doing, not by anybody else. And he's trying to convince him to come back and the guy's just not going to hear it. And they're sitting in front of a fire. Finally, the preacher decides, you know what, I think I'm going to try something. And he gets the stoker. He stands there before the fire and he pulls this one coal out of the fire and over by itself. And he sits down. It didn't take very long and that coal completely lost its red hot heat and died out. And he got back up again. He goes and he takes the coal. He puts it back over there. And it didn't take all that long that it caught back and was red hot again. And he looks over at the other guy. The other guy looks at him and says, Okay, I get it now. Part of what Jesus is trying to get the church at Ephesus to see is you won't always be able to get back to the love and the zeal and the excitement you had by simply doing what you're doing. Doing what you're doing may have gotten you to the problem as much as to the good. I want you to remember what you did at the beginning that really stoked your zeal and your love. Do it again. In a marriage, you open the door again. In a marriage, you leave the note again. In a marriage, you say, I love you all the time again. And it, because of the effect that has on your spouse you start to see the love rekindled in them and in yourself because as they respond, you then respond too. And it's the same in our faith. And this was Jesus' advice to the church at Ephesus. It's His command to the church at Ephesus. Remember, repent, reheat. Re reheat? Well, actually, yeah, sure, why not? I could have said reheat just as much as repeat. Same idea, isn't it? He makes up a promise too. Look at, at the end of verse 7. Well, we'll look at the whole verse 7. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. To the one who conquers, I will grant to eat of the tree of life, which is in the paradise of God. We'll talk about this with each letter. One of the cool things is he pulls something from their context, their, their cultural and historical context, 
when he makes them a promise. And each one, whether it's, we'll get to one where he talks about white stones and black stones and those have a legal significance in their time. And he does the same thing here. And I'm going to just share with you this from uh, N.T. Wright. And I'm only sharing his because, unfortunately, I couldn't find my notes from Richard Rogers. kind of liked his better. But uh, I want to share this insight with you. The great temple of Artemis had within its extensive grounds a wonderful garden focused on a particular tree which was used not only as a sacred shrine but as a focal point of a system of asylum. This tree even featured on some of the local coins. Criminals who had come within a certain distance of it would be free from capture and punishment. You know, in the Old Testament, God had commanded sanctuary cities that they would be for people who actually were, were maybe falsely accused or maybe the death was an accident. Maybe, you know, the axe head flies off of your axe, kills your neighbor. You could run to a sanctuary city and find sanctuary so that you wouldn't be killed and, and you could get fair justice. This was something a little bit different. You didn't have to repent at all. And this is what he, he's going to get at. You could, just, you could actually be a heathen who did it on purpose. But if you got there, it was like safe, you know, when you're playing tag. And so that idea. It's no, it's no accident then that this letter finishes with the promise that God too has a paradise. He uses an image they're familiar with. A beautiful garden with a, quote, tree of life at its heart. But God's paradise is no refuge for unrepentant criminals. It is the place where those who repent, verse 5, and those who conquer, verse 7, will have the right to eat from the tree and so to obtain a life of a sort which God always intended His human creatures to possess, but which until now they have forfeited by their sin. The tree of life, after all, was there in the original garden and will be there planted many times over in the garden city, the new Jerusalem, Revelation 22. It's Eden restored is his promise. But he pulls this image of what's in the center of the temple of Artemis and says, you know what? That's a false hope. Don't fall back into that. It is a false hope. But if you stay true to the end, I will give you hope that is real. I will give you hope that lasts. I will give you hope that is life but it only happens when you remember the love that you had. It only happens when you repent of where you've been and when you come back and jump back into the kingdom of God and the work of love that I've called you to from the very beginning. And that's true for them and it's true for us. If you hear that, that uh, description of a paradise and an Eden restored and think, man, I'd like to see that. That's the call of the gospel on your heart. That's the Spirit tugging at you. God wants everyone to know. Here and not here. Everyone to know. There is a promise. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself, that promise is yours. That's what He calls us to when He calls us to be baptized. Not just to an event that makes us feel great. He's calling us to the beginning of a life of love. A life that is a journey to paradise. You want to start that journey this morning. You can come forward now as we stand and as we sing.